Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, let's open our Bibles to Daniel, Daniel and Jeremiah 27. Daniel 1 and Jeremiah 27. We will read Daniel 1 just to get our bearings again. And then we will jump into Jeremiah 27. And um, this is going to be a continuation of going through verse 1 as well as the... This also helps to serve as partly introduction to let you know how we got where we are in this book. Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon under Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar into the house of his God and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Alright. Now we, we talked about how God had been, is dealing with Judah. He's sending them into captivity because of their disobedience. We looked at why. We, we looked at a couple of reasons as to why God was sending them into captivity in, in relation to their disobedience. There were some specific ideas that God laid out. And so we're going to continue with that. It was Jeremiah that was given the primary privilege of telling his own people, you're going into captivity. Imagine having to go around and preach to Ugandans. Um, Rwanda is going to come take you <laughs> and God wants you to go surrender. Uh, actually they, it'd be from the North. So it'd have to be Sudan or, you know, something like that. So, um, that's not an easy message to have to preach to your own people, especially at people who were as proud of their heritage as the Jews. Now turn to Jeremiah 27 and, uh, we'll go through this passage Quickly, and then get in, in you know, in, more into Daniel proper, and talk about that. We'll read verses one through eleven. Now, listen to the instruction given to Jeremiah to give to Judah. Now, we talked about when he was in the temple, and God told him, "Diminish not a word." And they said, "Well, we're going to kill you now." <laughs> well, he's st- he's still preaching. All right. Now, Jeremiah twenty-seven verses one through eleven. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord to me, 
Make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck. And send them to the king of Edom and to the king of Moab and to the king of the Ammonites and to the king of Tyrus and to the king of Zidon by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem under Zedekiah king of Judah. And command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall you say unto your masters, I have made the earth, the man, and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power, and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. Now that's relevant to what we've been talking about. Especially when we get to Daniel 2. When you get to Daniel 2, you're going to have that image... And that image is representative of Gentile powers. And we look at the word dominion. How God is, is passing dominion from, from, from power to power, from kingdom to kingdom, to whoever he sees fit to give it to. All right, so so I mean, there are clear demonstrations of that all through the word of God, but, but really clear when it comes to Daniel chapter 2, we'll see that even more. But, but if you just look at the word dominion or kingdom or king in the book of Daniel, you see that God is setting these kings up and taking them down as, as he pleases, as he, as he sees fit. And, and so now we're in an odd period now in the church age. And, and I don't know that I can say that God is not doing that now because it could be possible that he is. He doesn't, he doesn't consult with me. <laughs> But it doesn't look like it. Right now, the kingdom of heaven suffer with violence and the violent take it by force. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't intervene to make sure things keep moving in, in the direction to fulfill his ultimate plans. In the end, all that's going to happen. But it's kind of a hands-off approach during the church age. God is, it's like God is saying, if I get in your business and I'm going to find out you're a sinner and then I have to deal with you and that's not going to be good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back. I'm going to send people who know me to preach to you in the hopes that you'll trust in Jesus Christ and then I can save your soul and we'll deal with the judgment at the end. If God comes looking into your life right now, how happy would he be? Would he be able to overlook anything? I don't want to find out. <laughs> I want to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, praise him for his grace and his mercy, and then do all I can to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ, as we talked about yesterday, if you were in church. So um, that, that seems to be, uh, you know, generally, not, not specifically, but generally, that seems to be the program at the moment. Now, verse 6. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field... Uh, have I given him also to serve him and all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him and it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdoms which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon that nation will I punish saith the Lord with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence, and I have consumed them by his hand. That doesn't exclude Judah. God told Judah numerous times in the book of Jeremiah, go submit yourself to Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so this is not all nations except Judah. This is all nations. 
God has made Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kingdom, the, the, as far as we can tell, the first worldwide empire, literally established by God and given to a Gentile king. That's very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's not what we, you know, it's, it's, we still have, even as Christians, we still have this mentality that God does special things for Judah, for Israel, for the nation of Israel, and for Christians. And we think that because God does do special things for his people, that God won't do bad things to his people for their disobedience. But that's the story of the Bible. I mean, that's the whole Bible is, is trying to tell you if you're a man of any sort, if you if you descend from mankind, you're a sinner. You need Jesus Christ. You need to turn to God. That that is what needs to happen in your life, no matter who you are, where you're from. All right. So everyone is supposed to submit themselves under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, look at verse nine. Therefore. Hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers. There'll be some more words for Brother Gross when we get there. <laughs> and Michael. Nor to your enchanters. Uh, that, that sounds familiar. <laughs> we were just talking about that today. Nor to your sorcerers. Uh, you didn't have that one on your list, did you? Yeah, you might as well add it. Nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon. So they had these lying preachers and prophets in Judah. Jeremiah's over here saying, you need to submit to Babylon. They're over there saying, God wouldn't do that to us. God will give us victory if Babylon comes against us. And, the, and of course, the, the king and the people in power are saying, well, we like what they're saying better than what they're saying. They didn't say, okay, which one of you was sent from God? Who's telling the truth? Who do we listen to? They said, that sounds better, so I'm going to go with that. That is never a way to determine whether something is true or not. The fact that you can convince yourself to like it or that you naturally like it doesn't mean it's true. And it is always better to deny yourself what you like and to live in accord with truth. Or you end up like this. This is how churches get off track. This is how individuals get off track. This is how nations get off track. Well, I don't like how harsh the truth sounds. And these people are willing to tell me nice things. So I'm just going to go listen to them. Okay, you go listen to them. It's no problem. It's up to you. But the truth is still coming. And the consequences are still coming. Just because you went and found somebody to tell you nice things and tickle your ears doesn't mean that God's still not sending Nebuchadnezzar to come knocking on your door. It's going to happen. So it's always better to, to stop yourself and say, man, that, I really like what I'm hearing right now, but is it true? This is, this is going too well and sounds too good. Let's just pause for a minute and let me verify, is this true? Because you want to live in truth, you do not want to live in just, it feels good, it sounds good, I like it. Well, what if you've developed a taste for that which is not true? Then I like it, it's going to get you in trouble. But if you're willing to say, no, we're going to bring this body and these thoughts into subjection, so we're going to verify whether this is true or not before we go along with whatever it is 
that is being proposed. Culturally, nationally, politically, family-wise, or individually. You, you've got to, you, you, it, it is important that you put a pause on things and you say, before I step out into that, before I participate into that, in, the, in, within, in any of that, where did it come from? What, what's it attached to? What, what obligations are going to be placed upon me if I participate? Is it even right? Is it true? Maybe there's nothing wrong with it, but is it, I mean, what's, what's been the outcome for the past 10, 20, 15, 30 years? What does it produce? Should I let this in my life, yes or no, before I just get all excited and jump off the cliff and then find out that Nebuchadnezzar is still coming? All right, so, so it's important. Verse 10, for, the, for they prophesy a lie unto you to remove you far from your land and that I should drive you out and you should, you should perish. Now, I, I, don't, I don't personally think those lying prophets, I don't think they were working for Nebuchadnezzar and trying to trick Judah into, into going into to captivity. I, I don't think that was the case. There's no, there's no indication of that in the Bible. But that's basically what God said. He said, they're trying to drive you out of, the, out of your own land. Because if you listen to them, guess what's going to happen? <laughs> I'm driving you out of your land. So don't listen to them. They're lying to you. So you hear a man, you, you meet a man, oh, I'm, I'm a preacher. Oh, praise the Lord. Glad to know it. What do you preach? <laughs> Where does your message come from? Why don't you just tell me what salvation is? If you can get that right, then we can take a step further. But you can't just be, you can't just assume because someone says I'm a Christian, someone says I'm a Jew, someone says I'm a preacher, somebody says I'm, I'm a Baptist, whatever it is, whatever the catch terms are that get us excited, you shouldn't assume that they're meaning the same thing. And so you have Jeremiah over here preaching, God's going to send you into captivity if you don't repent. Then you have lying preachers over here, God would never do that to you. God's going to protect you. And if Nebuchadnezzar comes, he'll give us the victory. Okay. Well, God did say one of those. But you better find out which one it is and submit to that before you end up in serious trouble. Before we all end up in serious trouble. Verse 11, but the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him... Those will I let re remain still in their own land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell therein. Well, Judah didn't want to obey that. What did God just tell them? He said, okay, is it okay? You know what? You don't even have to leave. You don't even have to go to Babylon. Just, you wouldn't repent. I told you if you repent, I'd turn them away. You wouldn't do that. Okay, now I'm telling you, just go submit to him. You don't even have to leave Judah. You don't have to leave Jerusalem. You can stay in your own land till your own ground, and you'll just be subject to the king of Babylon. Nope, we will not do that. Okay. The next step is, he's not going to wait outside. He's coming in to take you, and you'll do nothing to stop it. You can have all the F-22s and all the tanks and all, you can have the biggest, most powerful military. If God has decided in this instance, Nebuchadnezzar is winning, Nebuchadnezzar is winning. There's nothing you're going to do about it. 
Right now, I, I personally, I, I am thankful to be part of a country to some extent that has a powerful military. It means people leave me alone. <laughs> right, there, there's, as Jesus said, if, if you want to keep people from coming into your house and stealing things, you've got to be a strong man. Right? We, we have a strong military. We spend $200 plus billion a year on our military. Right? Now, that, that's where I was born is how it worked out. There, there's no merit to being an American. Other, I mean, we, I was just born there. <laughs> I can't brag. I'm an American. That's like somebody saying, I'm, I'm white. What, did you earn that? <laughs> or you were born that way. What does that mean? I'm black. I have black skin. We are the black people. Okay? Well, you didn't attain that somehow. You didn't earn that. So I don't understand what's so special about it. Especially when you should be running away from your flesh and running to Jesus Christ. Because that white skin and that black skin comes with a lot of problems that makes God angry. So I wouldn't really be boasting about that. I would be boasting in the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm not boasting in the fact that I'm an American. But in terms of governmental powers and the ability to be safe and somewhat free in this country, coming from America gives you quite a few advantages. But if God decides he's, that America's going down, that military, that $260, $280 billion a year is not going to help them. Or me. And so Nebuchadnezzar has set his sights on, on Jerusalem by instruction of God. God is telling him, I want you to go take Jerusalem. I am giving the kingdoms of this world to you. You are the world power. It's yours. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. Not even the king of Egypt could do anything about it. Egypt was a fairly powerful country. They, they pretty much took what they wanted. And when they went against Nebuchadnezzar, they turned around and ran right back home. <laughs> Assyria was pretty powerful. Nebuchadnezzar walked right through Assyria. Nothing they could do about it. In fact, what we're going to find is so interesting about, again, referring back to this image, in, in terms of power, all right, um, and we'll explain this more when we get there. The more powerful country is taken by the less powerful. All right, that, that's the idea. It goes from, from gold to silver. Well, gold has less value than silver. And then silver to brass. Well, brass is far less valuable than silver. And then brass to iron, which again is, I mean, you can go buy iron sheets here in Uganda and put on the roof of your house. You're not going to put gold sheets on the roof of your house. <laughs> uh, so so there, there's, it, it's just interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was more powerful. But God said, you're going to be, you're going to be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. That's it. And it was done. <laughs> In a night, the most powerful country in the world at that time, a country that nobody would even think about going against. Overnight, it's over. It's done. Darius devised a way to walk right into the city, and, <laughs> and it's done. Belshazzar, Belshazzar is having his little drunken party, and in walks Darius the king <laughs> and kills him. And so... 
uh, and that goes back to what we opened up about in terms of how how much input politically that God has right now. It looks like he, he he's he. It looks like the God of this world is in control, and the kingdom of heaven suffered with violence. Those are the two major influences. So you should expect that things are going to tend towards the negative, not the positive. It's highly unlikely, morally, religiously, that a country is going to nationally improve. <laughs> not unless there's some, you know, like in, in the early days of America and England and other parts of the world, you had these incredible revivals break out that literally changed the nation. If that doesn't happen, the nation is not... The way God works right now is through me and through you. Go out, preach the gospel, Jesus Christ going with you to the end of the world, to the end of the earth, whatever. Wherever, wherever you go to preach the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go with you. That's what he's doing now. It's not political right now. The political agenda is on hold until the church is taken away, until the church age comes to an end. Then God goes back to establishing his kingdom which is what a lot of this is all about. The Lord trying to establish his kingdom and Adam failed and then Noah failed and then Abraham failed and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and on and on and on. Uh, no, nobody would do things the way he said. And so we have this trouble. All right. Um, so God told everyone, every kingdom, you need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, including Judah. And he said, to the nations who will submit, I'll let you stay in your land. If you won't submit, he's coming to get you. Now, here's where, again, the, the, the national pride comes in. We'll fight. God's instruction is submit to them. Now, I don't want to do that. But that's what God said to do. Judah didn't want to do that, but that's what God said to do. And so when God says to do it, you have to let your, your national pride slip away, which again is an attachment to your flesh. It's not a spiritual attachment. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking some sense of pride in your country and hoping the best for your nation. That's, that's not a negative thing. But if God said, I need you to abandon your, nation, your nationality and submit to Nebuchadnezzar, that's what we should do. Hey, man, that's exciting. Everybody looks all excited about that, that far. Yeah. All right. 2 Kings 24. It'll get more interesting a little later. Right now is the, the negative aspects. Judah's in trouble. And so... A lot of what we're talking about is Judah being in trouble. Um, all right, there's a lot to read here. We're not going to read it all, um, but there is something that we need to catch. So I'm going to write this down and let you write it down in your notes. You, you need to read it on your own later. So this next section runs from... 2 Kings 24, 1 through 25, 
12. So it's, it's most of chapter 24 and 25. Yeah, so it's like half of chapter 25. Um, I mean, there's a lot here that pertains to their going into captivity. We'll read some of it, but we don't have time to read all of it and go through it all. But it, but it gives a lot of, we might read most of it. But it, gives, it gives so much background information. So let's just read. I'll try not to make any comments. We'll get through as much of it as quickly as we can, and then we'll move on. Um, chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant. All right, now what, what happened just before that? Just one quick note. Anybody remember? What happened before Nebuchadnezzar came to besiege Jerusalem? All right, the question is, before Nebuchadnezzar came to besiege Jerusalem, what happened with Nebuchadnezzar before that? Again? Pharaoh Nico. So, Pharaoh Nico, they made Jerusalem their slaves, basically. And then he went up against Nebuchadnezzar. All right, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho and then turns and goes straight after Judah. So that's where we are right here. All right, verse, verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans. Actually, let's go back to verse 1. Let's, let's read it again. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, uh, came, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem. He goes back. That's, that's not in the passage here. You, you, there are other passages that will help piece all this together. He goes back because his father died. He puts Jehoiakim in place, just like Pharaoh Necho did with Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar made Jerusalem. They're, they're in servitude to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Though Nebuchadnezzar is going back to Babylon, his father has died. He's going to be crowned king. All right. He, re, he installs Jehoiakim as, the, as you know, the, the leader while he's gone. And then after three years, Jehoiakim rebels against him and says, no, we're tired of this. We're not doing this anymore. Well, <laughs> that was a bad idea. <laughs> Everybody understand? Everybody, you're all looking at me like we talked about this like seven times last, <laughs> last week. Everybody remember that? All right, let's real fast. Let's go through this. You need to remember this. It's important. All right, so Pharaoh Necho owns basically Jerusalem. All right? At that time, he put who in place as king? Who? Jehoiakim. Anybody remember his name before that? Huh? Yes. No. Say it again. Yes. And then Pharaoh changed his name to Jehoiakim. Huh? Well, that's what that's what Pharaoh called him. All right. So now. So now Jehoiakim and Judah are subject to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh's feeling good about himself and he decides, well, I'm going to go against Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar defeated him and sent him running back to Egypt. But when Nebuchadnezzar got done with Pharaoh, he said, 
I think I'm going to go take Judah. He besieged Judah in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. All right? Now, he takes Judah. He defeats them. He, he outlasts them. The siege, the siege works. He takes control. He puts Jehoiakim in fetters. He's about to march them back to Babylon. And historically, not biblically, but historically we know he received word that his father died. So now he's got to go back to Babylon and ascend the throne. Because right now he's, he's co-king. He's co-regent. There are two kings, basically. He's serving alongside his father. Okay? So he goes, so he, so he takes Jehoiakim, puts him back in as king in Judah. Everybody with me so far? All right? Now, Judah is now subservient to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar goes back. He's crowned the sole monarch of Babylon. He's the, true, he's the, he's the head king. There are still lower level kings that, that you read about all through the Bible. But right now, he's, he's the head. Okay? Jehoiakim is subject to Nebuchadnezzar for three years. And he decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back to besiege Jerusalem a second time. We're going to look at it in a moment, but, but I believe it was three times Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And after the third time, he burned the city to the ground. Temple and everything. All right, everybody with me so far? So that's where we are right here. Let's go back to verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. All right, so that's right where we are right now. Everybody, everybody good with that? Everybody understand? Yes. All right, any questions? All right, good. All right, verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees. Now, who sent them against Jehoiakim? <laughs> the Lord. That's amazing to me. As, as hard as it is for him to understand, God told him to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and during this three years, while he's in submission to Nebuchadnezzar, they get to stay home. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar went back, that's Daniel 3, or Daniel chapter 1. He took of the king's seed and the princes and part of the vessels of the house of God with him. But the rest of the people got to stay in the land as long as they were going to be subservient in submission to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Jehoiakim decided to ruin that. All right, so the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah. Man, that's, it couldn't be any more clear. Surely at the commandment of the Lord... This came upon Judah. Um, so it was God who did this to Judah as judgment for their disobedience. All right. Um, this guy, uh, to, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. We talked about that briefly last week, the sins of Manasseh. That's that's the key to the troubles with Josiah, who was a great king, who was an obedient king, who, who, who brought about great revival in Judah, who tore down the altars to Baal and, and just threw out all this garbage that shouldn't have been there. And then he died prematurely. 
Well, he, he, he was king at a bad time when this transition and Jeremiah is coming on the scene and all these things are happening that, that God is beginning to prophesy to Judah because of, their, because of their sin. And God would not pardon what Manasseh did. Verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came not, against, came not again anymore out of his land. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> that, that, let's, just, let's just relax here for a while. <laughs> And, um, and so he, he decided that'd be a good idea. For the king of Babylon had taken, from, had taken from the river of Egypt under the river of Euphrates uh, all that pertained to the king of Egypt. All right, so you, you, you mess around and, and you end up getting yourself in some serious trouble. You can't, you're not content. You can't be happy with what you got. <laughs> we took Judah. Let's just go a little bit further. Oh, there's Babylon. I'm not worried about Babylon. I'll take them too. Well, it turns out Babylon not only took Judah, but came and took part of Egypt. <laughs> and now you're feeling awfully comfortable at home. <laughs> it just, it, it's, it's amazing to see how, the, how nations go back and forth. And, and in this case, you're dealing with a nation that God has given supremacy. God made Nebuchadnezzar supreme. There's nothing you can do about it. If Nebuchadnezzar decided to come and take you, you better submit. At least you get to stay at home. <laughs> All right, so verse 8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta. That sounds like a good African name. Right? Doesn't that sound like an African name? No. No. <laughs> All right, Gross disagrees. The daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, his, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, Mom. Will you come with me? <laughs> like, what is it? What is this? I'm, I'm the king of Judah. Mom. <laughs> I don't understand this. I mean, that'd be the last person I'd be taken out with me to face the king of Babylon. Mommy, would you go with me? <laughs> Sounds like... Anyways. Yeah. Yes, yeah, son. Let's go die together. And his servants and his princes and his officers and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Wow. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, and none remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon and the king's mother. <laughs> See what he got her into? She could have stayed at home, maybe. And the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land 
Um, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths and a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, now we're going to talk about it specifically in a moment, but we've had two sieges. You had Jehoiakim, all right, Nebuchadnezzar took him. Next, you have his son, Jehoiakim, mommy's boy. King took him. Now we have Zedekiah, and he's left as king over the poor of the land. That's all that's left. Now, you know, so with Jehoiakim went the, 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 the king's seed and the princes and part of the vessels of the house of God. With Jehoiakim went everybody and everything of value. All he left was the poor of the land, and now Zedekiah is left to reign over the poor of the land that are left there. All right, now let's see how it goes. Even Zedekiah, I mean, I don't understand what's, I, I, I can't put myself, I struggle to put myself in the position of the kings at, at, at this point in time. Jehoiakim, who probably had the best chance to fight Nebuchadnezzar, didn't stand a chance, but he tried anyways. Then Jehoiakim, <laughs> mommy, will you, can you go talk to him? <laughs> he has no chance. Zedekiah, all that's left is you and the poor of the land. Just shut up. <laughs> Just be quiet. Try to live a peaceable life. Just Nebuchadnezzar's king. God gave him the whole world. We're just going to hang out here and be okay until everybody comes back in 70 years. No, that's not how it goes. Um, and he carried away Jehoiakim and the Maya, uh, look at verse 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal. Gross, how's that work? Yeah. He's from South Sudan. South Sudan. <laughs> the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Uh, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For he, for through the anger of the Lord, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until he had cast them out from the, his presence that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it hasn't worked for anybody else, but I think I can pull it off. Every time God sent Jeremiah to tell us Nebuchadnezzar's going to win, we did it anyways. But I think I can do it. <laughs> 25, verse 1, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month of Nebuch that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his hosts. That's not good. I mean, this is all you've got to fight with, the poor of the land. And they wish you'd just shut up and leave everybody alone so they can, I mean, they're, they're, they're worn out. They've been besieged how many times in this many years? And then if you read and you read about what's going on in Judah at this time, 
You've got people coming in and killing people. And, and, and I mean, it's just, it, there's no security. It's, it's a mess. And, and they just won't leave it alone. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem and pitched against it. And they built forts against it round about, verse 2. And the city was besieged under the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about. The king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chal of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah and they gave judgment upon him and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire and all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard, break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives uh, that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen and the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord. And, and, and then it goes on to, to explain Many of the things they took. All right. So we got through it. We read it all. Um, so that, that's the third time. And it went worse for Zedekiah than the other two. He tried his best. He tried hard. He, he held out to the very end. And then he ran. And they caught him. And they killed his sons before his eyes. And then put his eyes out. The last thing he got to see with his eyes was his own sons being killed. Because he would not obey God. That's a hard connection to make. Now, God didn't, you know, to, to, to keep it in perspective, God didn't tell Nebuchadnezzar, kill his sons and put their eyes out. As far as we know, that was just the creativity of Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> but God did tell Judah, all of them, submit to the king of Babylon or he will take you with the sword. And they refused to listen. And so here we are. Now at this point, the city is burned to the ground. The walls are broken down. The poor of the land got to stay. But there is no more rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar says, this time, we're not going to have a fourth time. It's over. I'm done with this. We're burning it all to the ground. Whoever's left of value will bring them back. Whatever whatever." Items are left of value. We'll bring that back and we'll just leave the poor there to do what they want. And it's a mess. Look at Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 verses 1 through 14. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
That was the first year of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon. That is also, that is Nebuchadnezzar. There, there are some, if you read some of the commentaries and some of the historical information, um, the way to spell Nebuchadnezzar in English coming from, if it, I don't remember if it was the, the Hebrew, Hebrew way it was written or the Babylonian way it was written, it could be written either way, either Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadrezzar. And so, in some cases, they went with Nebuchadrezzar and some Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and I, I didn't look in, into it with any detail to find out specifically why the different, the, the different um, spellings, but it's the same person is basically what you need to know. Verse 2, The which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that that is... Three and twenty, the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again now, every one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land and the Lord that that, that the Lord hath given unto you. And to your fathers forever and ever, and go not after the other gods to serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your your hands, and I will do you no hurt. And so, uh, that, it's just going through the um, instructions that God gave to Judah, and He tells them repeatedly, "I have told you, I have told you, I have told you," and you refused. Turn to Jeremiah thirty-six. We'll look at a couple more passages, and then we'll get into some more detail. Jeremiah 36. Now, um, Jeremiah 36, and it came to pass in the fourth year of... Who's king? Jehoiakim. All right, this this is significant. All right, so this is... um, if you will, there's a saying in, in English. I don't, I don't know if you have it. I'm sure you have something like it in Luganda or whatever languages some of you speak. <laughs> Swahili. <laughs> um, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Everybody familiar with that? You know, if you put one straw on a camel's back, that's no problem. Put another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Eventually, it's going to get heavy. And there'll be that one straw you put on the camel's back, and it's just, <laughs> it just collapses. Well, what Jehoiakim did here, it, it, sort of sealed, it sort of sealed Judah's fate. This was, this is a significant time, and it is the fourth year of his reign. Let's look, at what, let's look at what happened. Verse 1, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto, unto, unto thee against Israel and against Judah. Now, it's important. The Lord at times recognized the two divided kingdoms. Israel, the northern kingdom, which at this time is already taken captive. But he's writing to them in this role. And Judah is about to be taken captive 
as we're going to learn in this role. So against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them. That, that, is, that is the type of warning I hope I never get from God. I don't want to be moving in a direction that he has to send a warning like that. But I sure hope to God if I ever get a warning like that, I start running in the other direction as fast as I can and do what he says. Because what happens next is not good. It's very serious. Your willingness to obey God or willingness to disobey God, it has very serious consequences. Choose wisely. Don't toy with God. Don't assume he won't step in and say, I think I'm going to deal with that. Because he might. Jeremiah, the same prophet that we're reading right now, he said in another place, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. (laughs) God doesn't even have to step in and do anything. The way this world is designed by God, if if you live in sin, your own wickedness is going to correct you. It's going to hurt you. The way of the transgressor is hard. You're you're giving yourself a hard life by living in sin rather than giving yourself an easy, happy, joyful life filled with the fruit of the Spirit by living in obedience. All right, so it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Barak, the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Now, there's a good chance that a lot of your Bible was written this way. Um, if, If you look at who wrote most of the epistles, they start out with the name Paul, but if you get to the end, you find out Paul didn't, wasn't the one who wrote it with his hand. So this is probably the model. You have, you have God speaking to Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah speaking to Baruch, and then Baruch recording the words. So, so they're the words of Jeremiah the prophet, given by God, written by Barak. And the Bible doesn't say that that's what Paul did, but if you look, look at the New Testament epistles, they were written by Tychicus, Titus. Um, I mean, there's a whole number of guys, Silvanus. There's a number of men who wrote these epistles on behalf of the apostle Paul, which means likely that he dictated it to them as he got it from God. All right, so verse 5. And Jeremiah commanded Barak, saying, I I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be... They will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord hath pronounced against this people. And Barak, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book 
the words of the Lord in the house of the Lord. All right, now drop down to verse 14 and let's see how it goes. Therefore, all the princes sent uh, Jehudai, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the roll in his, in his hand, and came unto, him, unto them. And they said unto him, Sit down now, and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and, and other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. Now that this initial group, they're, they're terrified. That's the proper response. You should be terrified right now. Because Nebuchadnezzar is about to come knocking on your door and God is against you. You should be concerned. All right? Not the king. Verse 17. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us, how, tell us how, uh, now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Now listen to the process. All right? It, it really is so simple. But it's, it's biblically correct. Verse 18. Then Barak answered them. He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth. And I wrote them with ink in a book. <laughs> now people today. The, the, the King James Bible can't be perfect. Men wrote it. <laughs> well here's a man writing the words that came out of the mouth of another man. And God said what was written there were the words of God. All right, God had no problem with it, so I have no problem with it. Verse 19, Then said the princes unto Barak, Go, hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went in, into the king, into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the, on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves... He cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Verse 25, nevertheless, El Nathan and, um, and you know, my Bible divides the names up and puts the hash marks and all that in it. It makes it harder to read. It's supposed to make it easier to read. It does not make it easier. Like the word is all divided up. It makes it hard to, to, to run. Uh, Deliah and Gemariah and made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded uh, Jeremiel, the son of Hamelech, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to take Barak, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, I wish the king hadn't burned that. I forgot everything that was on that roll. I don't know what I'm going to do now. Is that what God said? 
No, God had no problem reproducing his word when somebody tried to destroy it. You're not going to get rid of God's words. They're not going away. You can burn them. You can cut them. You can destroy them. God will just reproduce them somewhere else. And you might get yourself in trouble because what he might do is add to it. Look at verse 28. Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, uh, hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause, cause to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and the night of the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearken not. Then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Barak, <laughs> the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of, the, of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added... Besides unto them, many like words. God said, I'm just going to make it worse for you now. Right? So now this is interesting. He said Jehoiakim would never have a seed to sit on the throne of David, right? This is, this is how perfect your Bible is. In Matthew, you have the genealogy, Right? Of Jesus, it goes through Jehoiakim to Solomon to Jesus. To Jesus. Now, if that's true, that means that Jesus cannot sit on the throne of David. But the Bible prophesied Jesus will sit on the throne of David, right? Now, this is what's important. All of this. Goes to who? Joseph. In Luke, it bypasses Jehoiakim and Solomon, and it goes through another son of David, I think it's Nathan, if I remember, to Jesus, which is the genealogy or the lineage of Mary. Now, that's incredible. <laughs> That somebody thought that through. Well, I remember back in Jeremiah, he said that Jehoiakim can't have a seed to sit on the throne of David. And I'm writing this genealogy, so i got to be careful not to implicate Jesus as part of the seed of Jehoiakim. Otherwise, I'll cause a contradiction and Jesus won't be able to sit on the throne. Or God put it together and said, I, I mean, Joseph is not the physical father of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus Christ in Mary Mary is his actual mother in the, in, 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 the, uh, in the body of his flesh. And through this lineage, it bypasses Jehoiakim and Solomon. And it goes from, Nathan, from David to Nathan to, and all the way down to Jesus. And this is the bloodline of Mary. That's pretty interesting. Okay. All right. That, that's, that's the bulk of the 
the historical background, and, and, and there will be a lot, of the, a lot more information in, in the notes when I, when I upload it online for you to read and look at. Um, I would take your time and go through it. Um, don't think that because you're not going to be tested directly on these things, that there won't be any surprises or any reason to know them. Just, just saying. You want to make sure, you want to get this, this historical narrative in your mind and be comfortable with it and be able to explain it and be able to talk about it and be able to, uh, to, to explain to somebody what happened to Jehoiakim, what happened to Jehoiakim, what happened to Zedekiah, how many, how many times did Nebuchadnezzar besiege Jerusalem, what happened in, in each point, what did he take, who did he take? This is all important information and directly related to, to what we're talking about in Daniel. All right, now let's go back to Daniel. And we'll, we already talked about it. We've already read it. So I'm just going to write this on the board, and you can write it as well. Um, we've, we have basically worn out the historical background to the book of Daniel. You should thoroughly know now how we got here, both what the historical narrative is and why. You should be able to explain that with everything that I've given you so far. <laughs> One person. All right. This is going great. Um, all right. Judah was, I'm sorry, uh, I thought you had a question. I was excited for a moment. Judah was besieged by Babylon three times. Babylon besieged Judah three times over a period of 19 years. Judah went through multiple kings. And they were taken captive in waves over this time period. All right, so the first one is, is where we're picking up. That is, let me bring this over here and just write it down while we're here instead of going back and forth. Um, so number one is Daniel 1, 1 through 4. All right, that's, that's where, where our study is picking up. Uh, that... that Daniel, I mean, it's so interesting because Daniel and, and the men who went with him and part of the vessels of the house of God are in Babylon when Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah have their battles with Nebuchadnezzar. So they're back in, they're in Babylon while their home country is being invaded by the people that they have to serve. You just think about that for a minute. Um, this coincides with 2 Kings uh, 24. 1 through 2 and 13. Also, 2 Chronicles 36, 5 through 7. And Jeremiah 22, 18 through 19. That's, that's all pertaining to this first siege. Now, number 2. The second siege is detailed. We just read a lot of it in 2 Kings Kings 24, 8 through 17. And then you can read a little bit about it in Ezekiel um, 1, 1 through 2. Let's read that real quick. It's, it's interesting. I want you to get these connections between the... Um, other people who came into captivity after Daniel, Ezekiel wrote from captivity. 
So all that crazy stuff that God's having Ezekiel do, he's doing it <laughs> in Babylon <laughs> for, for Judah to, to, you know, to, to understand what's, what's going on. Ezekiel 1, let's read verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was uh, among the captives by the river of Chebar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God in the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's captivity. All right, so what does that place him? Who was king in the first siege? Jehoiakim. Who's king in the second siege? Jehoiakim. Chin. (laughs) All right, and then you have the third siege which is 2 Kings 25, 25, 1 through 12. And this is Zedekiah. All right. Everybody got that memorized and ready for a test on it? So they were besieged three times. Now, Babylon is traced back to the Tower of Babel, which is very interesting. Anybody, anybody remember where the Tower of Babel was? What plane was it in? Plain. Land. Field. Shinar. Shinar is, is Babylon. The area known as Babylon is modern-day Iraq. The Tower of Babel was located around 20 miles south of Baghdad. Now, I... I was stationed in, in um, Iraq in a place, in an air base called Talil Air Base. Hmm? This is not a Luganda word. Indikula Medebi? Mafishkula Medebi, then Mafibushkila. All right. So. And this, the town is called Ah-Nazariah. Right? And so they say, they, they take you to this place in Ah-Nazariah that has this massive platform with this rounded shaped tower that was on it that was massive. And they say that they believe that was the base to the Tower of Babel. Also, in this area, they, they claim that they take it to a grave site, and they say that that's where Abraham is buried. But, but who knows? So, uh, Genesis 10.10. 10, um, Genesis 10.10 10 is the first verse to mention the word kingdom, and the first verse to mention the word Shinar. It's very interesting. And that's, that's what we're talking about in Daniel, this, this battle of the kingdoms and, and dominion and power and, and, and all these things. And so the connection is interesting considering that Babylon became the first true world power. Thus, the first kingdom would give birth to the first world power, which was named the head of the Gentile powers. But it would be destroyed by the king of kings upon his return. All right, Daniel 1 verse 2. Let's start Moving quickly through 
this book because chapter 1 has to be done tonight. And we're in verse 2. All right, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. All right, the battle that would result from being besieged by a foreign power was a decisive victory for Babylon. Not necessarily because of their skill in battle, though they were skillful, but rather it was the Lord himself who delivered Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem to the ground and took the remainder of Judah captive, this marked the start of the period known as, who can guess? Again? The times of the Gentiles. It's a very important term, especially when, when trying to rightly divide the word of truth. You have to square everything, and it's, it's so odd because... At no other point necessarily in, in your Bible are we really concerned about Gentiles. I mean, Gentiles mean, they, they mean little to nothing in the Word of God, except in this point. This began the times of the Gentiles. Now, in terms of political change... Nothing happens until this is fulfilled. Nothing is changing politically until this is fulfilled. Israel is scattered. They have no rights to their land right now, not until Jesus Christ comes back and brings them back into their land. They have no, they have no political credibility whatsoever in the world right now. They are completely subject to Gentiles. Until Jesus Christ comes and smashes Gentile powers. Yes, sir. When exactly when you say that time begins? The moment. So, so there's a couple of possibilities. At no point does the Bible say right here. All right. So there are two things to keep in mind. Number one, Israel, the northern kingdom. Is taken by Assyria 115 years prior to, to Judah. Number two, Judah is taken by Nebuchadnezzar. All right, now here's, here's, where, here's where your opinion comes in, okay? It could be with the first siege, second siege, or the third. My guess is the third, when he burned Jerusalem to the ground, and he burned the temple to the ground. If you wanted to say it's the first, okay. Because after the first siege, Nebuchadnezzar owns Judah and Jerusalem. They're in his control. So you can make an argument for the first, for the first siege. Because the, the moment he puts Jehoiakim, the moment he wins that battle, that siege, and he takes control of Judah and Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar has been appointed head of the world empires. And the, and, and the, and the, and the times of the Gentiles are, they, they, they began at that point in time. All right, so the reason I lean towards the third is because that's when he burned 
Jerusalem to the ground, there is nothing left to claim for the Jews to claim as theirs. It's, it's over. And then, of course, we, we've read it already, so we're not going to go back and read it, but that's Luke 21, 24. The Lord said that this time must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. All right. Prior to besieging Jerusalem, Babylon had defeated Assyria and Egypt, making them the first world power. Now, defeating those two nations did make them a world power, but God gave him that position. So while winning those battles is part of it, officially God gave him that position. So so the other kingdoms didn't stand a chance. Once Jerusalem is burned to the ground, from that time forward, Gentiles dominated the kingdom of heaven. To this day, Jerusalem and the site of the temple are under control of the Gentiles. The modern-day nation called Israel is dominated by the United Nations, Gentile powers. Islam controls the land where the temple belongs. Currently, an extremely important mosque sits exactly where the Temple of Solomon should be. The Dome of the Rock is a massive mosque sitting exactly where the temple has to be built. Which means Israel has no, no control, no say, no option in their own land to put up their own temple. Yes, they will rebuild the temple. That mosque will come down. The temple will be rebuilt. And then that's when the interaction between Israel and the Antichrist will take place. No, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, they're not going to give it up willingly. I can guarantee you that. How it's going to happen, we don't know. It's not, it's not in the Bible how, necessarily how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Um, Israel has no say in these matters, and they will not regain their position as head of the nations until their Messiah, Jesus Christ, returns and ends the time of the Gentiles. Um, look real quick at Luke 21. Luke 21 and uh, 3 verses 27 through 28. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. All right, that, that's until then, Israel is, is under the control of the Gentiles. They, they flee into the mountains, they're hiding, they're being hunted down. They have no, no hope until Jesus Christ comes and redeems them. All right? Uh, this status given to Nebuchadnezzar was given to him by God, and therefore he became the head of the Gentile, the head of Gentile dominion, the head of gold in chapter 2. And um, if you look at Daniel 1 2, let's go back to Daniel quickly. Look at some of these verses as fast as we can and keep moving. It was important to establish that historical background. Um, we still have, we've got a good amount of time, so I, I don't want to rush it too much, but I don't want to get bogged down either. So Daniel 1 and verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands. Look at Daniel 5. Daniel 5 and um, let's read verses 18 and 19. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar 
thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. Now, this, that, that verse, we're going to look at it again later, it's going to become important in terms of the character of, this, of these descending Gentile powers. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. Nobody questioned anything he said. If you did, <laughs> uh, it was a fiery furnace, a lion's den. I mean, it, you, you would meet your death in any number of ways, right? Um, when you get to Cyrus, Cyrus is bound by his own laws. Cyrus makes a decree. He can't overturn his own laws. The laws of the Medes and the Persians. You remember reading that in the Bible? As soon as he makes this decree, that law is signed. The signet is sealed. It can't be overturned. The king can't overturn his own. He can't undecree his own decree. You would not come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you made that a law and you can't overturn it. You and that law would go in the fiery furnace. (laughs) By the time you get to Greece, which is attributed to Alexander the Great, he is controlled or he is, to, to, to some extent, subject to four generals. So he doesn't have, he's not a supreme monarch. He's un, he is subject to four men who have some level of power and control over him. Then by the time you get to Rome, the Caesars are elected. And they have a senate. And this battle between the elected Caesar and the elected senate Become, becomes very difficult. And, and then, of course, today, by the time you get to the ten toes, you're in the, the realm of democracy. Everybody loves democracy. Well, what does your country look like when you give a bunch of reprobates the opportunity to select its leaders? <laughs> all right, so that, that's... All right, so God said, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5... Whom he set up, he sets up. Who he takes down, he takes down. Who he kills, he kills. He's, he's the head. He's un, you, you don't question him. All right? But these other kings didn't quite. It, so so the part, of the, part of the devaluing process is, is in the character of the government. So as you go from gold to silver and silver to, to uh, uh, brass and brass to iron, and then iron to iron mingled with clay, it just, it's... It's not improving. <laughs> it's not getting better. Now, I don't mind. I mean, it, the Bible speaks highly of a supreme dictator. That seems to be God's choice in terms of government, which I'm okay with as long as I agree with the supreme dictator. <laughs> as long as his policies agree with mine, then it's all good. <laughs> uh, if not, then that doesn't, that doesn't work out too well. So, um, so the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, this powerful position. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands, and and we saw that in Daniel 1-2. We also saw it in 2 Kings 24. Jehoiakim became his servant for three years, and then he rebelled against the king, and Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. He he dealt with that. Um, Now, we discussed Shinar briefly as the home of Babel. Now, I'm not going to read all this to you because... 
there's some controversial stuff in here, and when I put it out publicly, people weep and wail, and, and there's gnashing of teeth. So it's in the notes. It'll be in WhatsApp. If you want to read it, you're, you're welcome to read it. Um, what you need to know, and this is significant, it's important to what we're studying, because when we look at the, the Hebrew boys having their names changed, so you have Shinar and Babel, which eventually is Babylon. This is this this region of the world produces the majority of false religion, especially of the pagan sort. Almost, and now the reason this is significant is because Shinar, that's an I, in case you didn't know, uh, Shinar and, and Babel and Babylon, this is where gods, false gods like Baal come from, also known as Bel. So you go from Daniel to Bel to Shazar. Everybody see that? All right, so he's named after Nebuchadnezzar's God. All right, so a lot of the false religions that even Christians participate in, a lot of the paganisms that Christians so happily participate in, in the name of Jesus, which is a a ridiculous idea. This is where it came from. It's deeply rooted there. The birth of the sun god, bunny rabbits that pop out eggs, Any that sound familiar? All comes from here. So you can read through it in the notes as you go through and have fun with it. Um, The vessels of the house of God are now in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Um, And that's, we're already in Daniel 5. Let's read verses 1 through 4 real fast. Uh, Belshazzar, does that look familiar? So we're just talking about, so this is Nebuchadnezzar's son, and look at his name, Bel Shazar. Nebuchadnezzar is named after Nebo, which is another another false god related, you know, to Bel and Moloch and and all these all these false gods and and things throughout history. Now, uh, Daniel five, verse one, Belshazzar, the king. Uh, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden, golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. So it wasn't enough to take God's vessels and put them in the, the, the house of his God in Shinar. He had to bring them out and fill them full of liquor and, and, and make it part of the party. And, um, and, and this is what's so interesting. Here's the comparison. We, our bodies, we are the vessels of God. All right? Now, if you want to do nothing with the vessels of God, it, it seems that God will give you the liberty to do that. But if you want to take the vessels that belong to God and start filling them with liquor and 
and misusing them and using them inappropriately in an ungodly and deliberate way, God might take issue with that and step in and deal with it. You're a vessel of the house of God. God God dwells in your body. In fact, one of the ways that people get you to get off track and to, and to abuse the house of God is to fill you full of liquor. They want the vessel of God filled with alcohol because then it'll do all sorts of things that it would not normally do. Does everybody see where that's going? All right. So God is not a fan of drink, especially a fan of his, of his vessels being filled with ungodly drink. Look at 1 Samuel 5. Now, as long as God's vessels were in, Neb- in the God of Nebuchadnezzar's house, God left them there. They're going to go back in 70 years anyways. They're, they're probably being kept safely. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it, it's not where God wants them. But in the current situation, they, they were fine until Belshazzar decided to bring them out and, and, and toy with them openly. Um, but let's, let's look at this. 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 7 And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. Now, again, I I don't want to get bogged down in these things and I get myself in trouble and have people calling me crying. But Ashdod, Dagon, that's that's all part of this system of false religion and uh, certain pagan practices that come along with that. Um, all right, where were we? So, verse 3, and when, they had, and when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of God, of the Lord. Imagine that. You walk in and your God is laying on the floor on its face before the ark of God. <laughs> How did this get here like this? Pick it up. All right, verse 4, and when they arose early on, on the morning, behold, Dagon, uh, go to verse 5, therefore, neither the priests... Neither the priests of Dagon nor any that came into Dagon's house uh, tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with the emrods, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. So, so the point is, the idea here is, if God wants his vessels back, <laughs> he can make that happen. He's not limited in his ability to say, no, those need to go back to to Jerusalem. They were fine being stored where they were until God was prepared to send them back. In fact, if we get to it, we'll see when when God sent them back, they accounted for all the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took and took them back with them. God has no problem. In fact, uh, turn to Ezra chapter 1. Let's just look at it real fast while we're here. Ezra chapter 1. Verses one through or seven through eleven. Verse seven. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar. Now, Sheshbazar is Zerubbabel, who is eventually appointed governor of Judah when they go back. Uh, Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah, and this is the number of them, 30 chargers of gold, 1,000 chargers of silver, 9 and 20 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a, sec- of, of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, 1,000. 
All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. So God had no trouble accounting for his vessels 70 years later and bringing them back home. And when it's time for God to take you home, he'll have no trouble accounting for his vessels and making sure he has every one of them and taking them to be with the Lord. So while you're in possession of that vessel, use it to the best of your ability. God will account for it and take it home when that time comes. Praise the Lord. All right, back to Daniel 1. See, we're already in verse 3. Moving right along. Daniel 1, let's read verses 3 and 4, and uh, we'll start into this and take a break. Um, Verse 3, And the king spake to Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. All right, now, now we're going to see, turn, as, as I'm talking, turn to 2 Kings 20. Now we're going to see, you've been brought into this land, now we're going to change you. Now we're going to alter who you are. Um, the Bible doesn't explain necessarily the motive for this. A lot of the preaching attributes it to Nebuchadnezzar deliberately trying to erase who these young men were. That could be part of it. But I think the reality is that Babylon is just named the greatest world empire. If you're going to move to Babylon, Babylon expects you to be Babylonian. They don't care where you came from. They're not going to make a special case for you. That used to be the the case in America. If you moved to America, you could be Cuban and be in America. You could be African and be in America or Asian and be in America, but you adopted the American lifestyle. There was a mentality, a direction, a way that we did things. And if you came to America, you, you keep a measure of your culture, but you don't keep your country. There's a reason you left your country. (laughs) Nobody's nobody's floating on tires to Cuba. They're leaving Cuba and trying to get to America. All right. And then when they get there, they expect there to be freedom. They expect there to be opportunity. They expect the ability to work hard and and to be able to provide for their families. And so as Americans, up until recently, we expected if you move to America that you're going to try and adopt an American mentality, the language, the lifestyle, all, the, all these different things. You don't have to be exactly like us, but there, there, there has to be a range of adaptation that allows you to, to move freely in America. Now, if I move to another country, it, they, ha- they have every right to have the same expectation. And, and that seems to be what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. Some of it is religious because, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has the place of his gods. He puts these uh, uh, vessels in the house of his gods. I mean, there's definitely potentially a religious ideological aspect to it, but it just seems like you're in Babylon now. You need to learn the language. You need to learn our sciences. You need to learn our religions. You need to learn our culture. You, You as an outsider, 
a Jew coming into Babylon, you need to assimilate to our lifestyle. And by the way, you're going to be standing before the king of Babylon. So you really need to know how to do things in a way that pleases him, or he might drop you dead on the spot. <laughs> All right, so, so I don't doubt that some of it is religious in nature, but it just seems to me like with the position these men are being put in and the things that they're about to have to go through, that, that a major aspect of it is you need to learn life in Babylon and adopt it and be Babylonian, especially if you're going to be standing before the king. Um, 2 Kings 20 Let's read verses 12 through 9. Verse 12. Uh, at that time, uh, Barodek Beladan. How's that one? You like that one? The son of Beladan. <laughs> I see where the name came from. <laughs> uh, king, uh, king of Babylon sent letters and a, a present unto Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed, showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto Hezekiah. And said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are, they are come from a far country, even from Babylon. Now this is, this is way back, long before Judah's captivity. This is, this is going to prophesy of Judah's captivity and of the sons of the kings. All right, so that's, that's what we're looking at here. Um, verse 15, And he said, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in mine house have they, have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons... That shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Then said, now listen to this response. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. And he said, is it, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Now you understand what he's saying? Oh, my sons? You mean later? But I'm not going. <laughs> so in my days, it's going to be okay. But my dumb decision has caused my children, the seed of the king and the princes, they are going to become eunuchs in Babylon. What happened in Daniel 1? The king's seed and the princes are taken and they're made eunuchs. Now, you know what that means. That means a physical surgery was done. Uh, it didn't change their gender, uh, but it changed an awfully important aspect of them physically. And they will never be the same again. It can't be undone. They will be eunuchs for the rest of their life. 
And somehow Daniel still kept a good attitude. I would, I'm just, look, I try to think of myself in these situations. <laughs> like, no, you take that knife and you kill me. <laughs> yeah, you're not cutting anything off. You're just going to put me to death. Look at uh, Isaiah 39. Yeah, we've got two minutes. Isaiah 39. We'll read this and then we'll take a break. Oops, I went too far. Isaiah chapter 39. Daniel is a remarkable character in the Bible. Uh, Verses 1 through 8. At that time, uh, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters under the uh, uh, present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he was sick. And so it just gives the same prophecy again. So we don't don't need to reread that. Uh, The book of Daniel does not expressly tell us that these men were made eunuchs. But the previous prophecy, coupled with the fact that they were under the authority of the prince of the eunuchs, makes it very plausible that they were made eunuchs. This means that these young men may have been brought into Babylon and then physically mutilated in preparation for service to the king. The prophecy was that the king's seed will be made eunuchs, and Ashpenaz brought in children of Israel who were among the king's seed and the princes. And that's in Daniel 1.6. In Daniel 1.6, we learn that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were among these children. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.